Lord God, may you shape our thoughts and our minds and our actions, that you might be glorified, that we might be led by your Holy Spirit to praise our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, this has been a tumultuous and a tragic week in the life of our nation. Uh, many of us have been riveted by the pictures that we have seen on the television from Baton Rouge to Minnesota to Dallas and subsequently many other places. This morning's text and the parable of the Good Samaritan I think is a good picture for us to be able to look at this morning. Jesus became our neighbor. He became our neighbor to rescue us. We were, we are, beaten up, broken, lost, we're in the ditch. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and as one translation puts it, entered into the neighborhood. And because Jesus Christ became our neighbor, we can be a neighbor. This may be the most powerful picture for us. We have received mercy. Jesus became the Good Samaritan. I would even take it a little further. Jesus got down in the ditch, suffered the brokenness on our behalf. And because of that, we can show mercy. No longer asking, well, who is our neighbor, but to whom are we a neighbor? Jesus took pains to create a picture for us. Creating mental pictures that guide us into our understanding. Rather than so much leading with the cognitive and then trying to follow up with an illustration, he led with a picture so that we would have our understanding shaped. Some of you this summer, on a, maybe on a day that rains at the lake or cabin, uh, place that you have, will pull out the jigsaw puzzles. You'll spread it out and you'll spend a few hours trying to put the puzzle together. Have you ever tried to put a jigsaw puzzle together without the picture on the cover? It's kind of hard to do. Your eye, at least for me, I'm always looking at the cover, the box cover with the picture. Jesus gives us that picture. Charles Dugan in his uh, business book, Smarter, Faster, Better, gives two scenarios of plane incidents. One was the Airbus Flight 447 in 2009 that was flying from Paris to Rio. Ice crystals formed, setting off the indicators that registered the speed of the aircraft and turned off automatically the, air, the, pilot, uh, the automatic pilot function of the plane. This threw all of the pilots in the cabin, of course there's multiple ones in the Airbus 330, threw them all off and became, they became disoriented. And the pilot at the lead control kept climbing, pointing the nose upward even past 38,000 feet. Buzzers are running and ringing off in the cabin, stall, stall, stall. And they never regained orientation. They lost situational awareness. Psychologists call it cognitive tunnel vision. 
You're not able to really grasp what is really happening. And they were so confused by the data coming in that the simple act of lowering the nose on the plane didn't occur to them. The plane dropped from the sky, all 288 people were killed. A year later, a Qantas Airbus 330, an engine blew, and it, the turbine in the uh, jet ripped the, the, the wing, causing a fire, and all sorts of systems on the plane were shut down. And streams of data are coming in from the computers on the plane, guiding the pilots. And finally, the lead pilot said, don't tell me what's wrong, just tell me what works. And the mental image that guided him was his joy of flying a Cessna. And he said, I just pretended I was flying a Cessna to a safe landing. Mental pictures are exceedingly important, and Jesus understood this as he told the parables. Jesus, I think, in this parable is confronted by an expert of the law who has cognitive tunnel vision. We've all been there. We, too, are distracted by the data, by the questions, by our own self-justifying concerns. There's a lot to this simple parable. I want to make the case that obedience in Jesus Christ, having received his mercy, is really very simple. But it's interesting what interpreters have done with this parable of the Good Samaritan. Augustine took kind of the whole of salvation history and poured it through this parable. So Adam is the lost person in the ditch who fell from the heavenly city of Jerusalem and the robbers are the devil. And the devil has robbed Adam of his immortality. And Jesus comes along as the Savior, as the Good Samaritan, and rescues him. He binds him up with the, the wine and the bread of the Holy Eucharist. And he sends him to the inn, which is the church. And the innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. Takes the whole drama of salvation, pours it through the story. That's at one end of the interpretive scheme. The other end are those much more in the tightly reformed tradition that read this and say... Jesus told this story to prove to you that you can't do it. You can't be the Good Samaritan. Only Jesus can be the Good Samaritan. So when Jesus says at the end, go and do likewise, you're supposed to realize you couldn't possibly go and do likewise. I have trouble with that because I don't think Jesus is nearly that disingenuous. I think the challenge really is. This, having received the mercy of God, go and do likewise. Show the mercy of God. Luke sets the scene, and this is why we read this long passage in the gospel this morning. He sets the scene by Jesus kind of being ecstatic with the Holy Spirit. After the 72 have gone out and they've come back, and, and Jesus said, you know, thank the Lord, not that you did great things, but thank the Lord that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thank the Lord for that. And then he says, I thank you, Father. And I, I love this because I think the, the line between devotion to the Father and direction to the disciples is very, very thin. Jesus praying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then he goes on and speaks personally to the disciples. Blessed are the eyes that see what you, what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer, an expert in the Bible, stood up. And you know, you can stand up out of respect, but you can also stand up out of confrontation. And that's the picture we get here. The joy of the Holy Spirit, the pray for thanksgiving of the Son of Man, misses entirely. And maybe he wasn't even privy to it. This lawyer who now is on the scene to debate Jesus, to challenge Jesus. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now you might be thinking, man, we would like that kind of question today. Because we're so locked into this first level empirical world with uh, now is the time and it's only present moment happiness that seems to be in view. At least at this time, at this point, the tension was over the invisible realities of what God has done. The question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, as he so often does, he diffuses the argumentative philosophical debate. Okay, what's it say in the law? And the guy responds from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all your, all your being. You're supposed to love God and your neighbor as yourself. Connecting to the Leviticus passage. And Jesus says, well, good. Go and do likewise. Brilliant. You got it. End of discussion. Goodbye. But he, desiring to justify himself. And that really is kind of the crux of the issue here. The tension here is between mercy and merit. The tension here is between what I do to satisfy my own conscience so I feel better about myself and the acknowledgement of our utter dependence upon the mercy of God because we can't do anything to save ourselves. Who's my neighbor? And he asked that, and you know, he's got... The, the Leviticus passage takes pains, I think, in a parallelism statement in Leviticus that the neighbor is a person of your own country who is abiding with the law. And so it seems as if there's limits, there's a definition to neighbor that excludes some as it's including others. And so Jesus tells them the story. The story you know so well. The story of the Good Samaritan. And he always tells the story sort of with a twist, doesn't he? So he's got the, Levit the Levite and the priest passing by. The man in the ditch. Who's unrecognizable. Jew or Gentile, it wouldn't be known. Jew or Samaritan, it wouldn't be known. And... 
at that point with the Levite and priest passing, sometimes I think we're distracted by that. Let's say Levite and priest represent religion. They represent the law. And in that moment, we don't know what was in their mind. Are they rushing to an appointment? Is there a sense of scrupulousness with the law and they don't want to become unclean because of the duties they have to perform? Is it that they are afraid that the robbers are still around and will come back for them? Religious people, by and large, are uninteresting. They don't need to be figured out. So they passed by, let us pass them by. And the person of real interest here is the Samaritan who grows up without the covenantal tradition and is on the outside, but he, the Samaritan, shows compassion. And in the showing of the compassion, Jesus kind of ends his parable by describing in detail he goes to the man, he bandages his wounds, having cleansed them with oil and with wine. The detail of the story is in a sense a point to, underscoring, highlighting the compassion that the Samaritan shows. Then the conclusion, the question, who was the neighbor to this man in the ditch? Answer from the expert in the law, the man showed him compassion. Imperative, go and do likewise. End of story. I don't think we understand the story unless we understand that Jesus is headed to the cross. That Jesus has his own mental picture going on in his mind. The picture of helping humanity in the ditch by going to the cross to provide an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I don't think we can extrapolate this story out of the journey to the cross. And so, underscoring this picture of compassion is the whole context of salvation. So that the power to be able to show mercy is because we really have received mercy. And this is really what the Reformation was all about. We are justified by faith, but saving faith is never alone. Saving faith always inspires mercy. Therefore, brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul said... I appeal to you, I exhort you by the mercies of God that you present yourself as a living sacrifice. In the first service, I just, I saw how many times Craig uttered the word mercy in our worship. Our, our worship is undergirded by the fact that we have a merciful God who, and I, I'd agree with Augustine, the Good Samaritan is Jesus in the story. That's the mental picture Jesus has. But I take it even further. That God gets into the ditch. As broken, as beat up, 
as wounded. He got in the ditch and became dead that we might live. So he's a picture of the suffering servant by whose wounds we are healed. So he's identifying on many levels here in this very simple story. The early American pastor theologian Jonathan Edwards said, We are not saved on account of our works, but we are not saved without works. J.I. Packer said, Holiness is no more by faith without effort than it is effort without faith. You see, it's not a question of earning one's salvation trying to do good works, trying to justify ourselves through our meritorious actions. It's a question of being, a question of identity that then determines actions. True faith, Luther said, will no more fail to produce good works than the sun cease to give light. Now, faith always takes the lead, for it is by grace. You have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that anyone can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Remember, with this I'll close, remember the parable of the sheep and the goats, the very end of Jesus' preaching Ministry. The Sermon on the End concludes with this parable of the Son of Man dividing people the same way the shepherd divides sheep and goats. And the ones on the right are praised, are commended, not because they've done great things, but because they have shown the mercy of God in 10,000 ways in ordinary, everyday life. They have fed the hungry. They have cared for the needy. They have provided shelter to the lost. And you remember the reaction of the people on their right to this commendation? When did we see you and do this? And it's because they were doing these acts of mercy so naturally, so automatically, because they had received the mercy of God. Against any presumption of works righteousness, they had engaged in the work of righteousness. Because of the mercy of God, who got down in the ditch in order that we might live. Because we're not half dead, we are all dead in our trespasses. And God, by His mercy, has saved us. Amen? Amen. Amen.